As has already been mentioned tonight, I know that we each are thankful for the opportunity to gather, to come together in the way that we are, and to do so with the freedom and the liberty that's attached to our enterprise of offering our heartfelt worship and praise unto God. He is so deserving of our extolling grace. He is so deserving of a great compliments and commendation we can share toward Him. Tonight, as we come to another of the Minor Prophets, you can already tell we're already to number six in our consideration of the Minor Prophets. In previous lessons, we've already given some thought to Hosea and Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. And tonight, we come to the book of Micah. As you might well anticipate, the time of our consideration this evening will be focused upon that idea. And in that light, could I at least begin with some gentle and rather general introductory statements. And following that, we will make a few additional statements of generality as well, followed by a number of lessons you and I can draw from this wonderful Old Testament book. The Minor Prophets, as we've noted more than once, are books which are not minor in the sense of being inspired. They're only minor in the sense of being shorter than the other prophetical books. And therefore, we have every bit as much interest in books like Hosea and Micah as we do in books like Isaiah or Jeremiah, despite the fact that those latter ones are far longer. You may note about the middle of that slide, this book only totals 105 verses, scattered amongst seven chapters, and in that light, many of these chapters are fairly brief. Surely it'd be fair to say that Micah, just as was true of the other prophets, was such that he was not primarily one who foretold the future, though there are some passages which do that. He brought the message of God to the people of his day, urging them to think carefully, to think with admiration toward God, and to repent, as often will be a message found in this book. If you wish to give thoughts to the contemporaries, maybe none for, I, for Micah would fall better than Isaiah. They prophesied at about the same time. And therefore, it's not unusual to find some of the same issues in the book of Isaiah reappear in the book of Micah. Maybe this little chart will be one that will highlight at least somewhat about that timeline. I suspect, again, that the overall character will be easy enough to imagine if you could just take note of the given time frame. Let me, in fact, point out by using this laser some of the issues but Micah begins his prophetic ministry according to this time frame. You'll notice what's listed here sometime around 740 up to about 742 B.C. At that time, could I draw your attention? Again, Isaiah begins his prophetic ministry at about that same point in time. So these two labored rather interestingly in a contemporaneous fashion. I would point out, though, that Isaiah was a very directed prophet to Judah. On the other hand, Micah not only prophesied to Judah, but also to Israel. He actually had messages for both empires, and that made him somewhat unique. Maybe one final thing about this. Several of the kings are listed at the top. Could I at least point out that Ahaz is going to be a king reigning in Judah during the time, you see, of Micah's prophecy. Also, Hezekiah will be mentioned in that way. Other than that, if we revisit then that, uh, the next slide, I guess I'll just slide us on to that one, we will at least extend our general information along these lines. 
The opening verse of the book of Micah informs us at least a little bit about the nature of Micah himself, and quite frankly, that's all we know. We wish, no doubt, to know more about him, but sadly, the Word of God only details this. May I read the opening verse of the opening chapter? The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Moristhite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now that latter part of that verse does remind us of this. Again, he saw matters concerning Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. But he also had information by way of prophecy for the southern kingdom the capital city of which was Jerusalem. And notice that opening verse has detailed all of that for us. Otherwise, it goes on to say that he was a Moristhite. Maybe we're puzzled initially about that word, but I would ask you to notice the opening statement on that slide. Morish Gath was actually the name of a city which occurred in southwest Judah. Oddly enough, it was affiliated with Gath, and therefore it was originally a Philistine city. But the children of Israel had conquered it, and it was from that place that Micah had come. The second observation is this one. It highlights that one which I invited you to note a little bit earlier. Micah, interestingly enough, was provided the great blessing of God to not only proclaim to the northern kingdom, but also to the southern one. The third one, points out the time frame. He began his labors from about 735 on to 740 B.C., and he extended those labors till about 710 B.C. That will make a bit of uniqueness from another standpoint of Micah, wherein he actually witnessed the fall of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was crushed by Assyria in 722 B.C., right in the middle of the years of Micah's prophecy. You and I might then observe Micah had, I guess, the displeasure of seeing God's people conquered, crushed, overwhelmed, and carried off into captivity. You can well imagine then the passionate pleas that Micah must have made to them in light of what we're about to see tonight in this book. The earnestness, the seriousness, the heartfelt plea on his part toward them to repent to change, and to turn to God with all your heart. Maybe it is in that light. The next thought is this. If called upon to divide the book, the following seems to me to be about the best that one could hope for. It's a bit difficult to divide the book in any way that seems to fit the entirety of it. But this one sure seems come to, to in fact come close. If I could invite you to notice verse 2 of chapter 1, look at the way the verse is structured. Micah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. The structure looks like this. Please note the word hear. Hear all ye people. I say it that way because of this. Now turn over to chapter 3, look at verse 1. And I said, Hear, I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? We've seen two instances so far in which he calls the people by using a very express word to hear that which God has delivered to them. 
Now look at the third enterprise, chapter 6, verse 1. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. It would appear that chapters 1 and 2 fit nicely in one package as the first oracle which Micah delivered. Then in chapters 3 and 4 and 5, there's another coherent package in which the oracle of God is brought before them and it begins by admonishing them to hear what God has to say to them. But then chapters 6 and 7 fit again into a neat, coherent package in which they again are admonished to hear and God brings the word of declaration and wisdom to them. So maybe those three observations, fitting those particular chapters together, do so in a way that brings us to appreciate that nice division for the book. But I will go even one step further than that. Each one of those sections, that is to say chapters 1 and 2 forming one section, chapters 3 through 5 forming a second section, and chapters 6 and 7 forming a third section, in each section you find what I've invited you to note at the bottom of that slide. Each section has within it words of reproof, followed by words of threat if one does not do that which is the bidding of God. Finally, each section contains a promise, a word of restoration by which God will share forth to them the blessing of a better future day. With all that having been said as a somewhat of an introduction, what about putting some more meat upon that skeleton? looking at some of the further matters drawn from the book itself that might be a great blessing to us, to be sure. Let me transition us to the next slide. And I've entitled the first portion, A Reminder of the Coming Judgment. I entitled it that way because so much of various portions of the book of Micah directly connect to that message. God spared no punches. Would you again recall the time frame? 740 B.C., Micah roughly called to prophesy. Eighteen years later, Assyria was coming, and they were going to go into Assyrian captivity. That's the northern kingdom. Oh, how urgent must have been God's message through Micah. Please listen, and please hear, he would tell them. Please be mindful of what God expects of you, and live as you should. With all that said... The coming judgment is something that I would wish for us to develop and do so in ways following the matter on that slide. The coming judgment in some ways takes a very interesting turn when we recognize this. If we take the time to revisit the books of Chronicles and Kings and look at the kings that were reigning at this time, we would find that historically and economically everything was fine. The enemy nations, at least for the moment, were somewhat reserved. They were somewhat taken up by following other matters in other places. They had not yet turned their attention to Israel. Although Assyria, as in many ways a giant sleeping dog, but yet she was lying sleeping at this time. But she was going to rise, turn her attention to empires like Israel, and overwhelm them. But that wasn't true for the moment. On that slide, I might invite you to note this. During that time, verses 5 and 6 of chapter number 1 point out, there was serious sin, ungodliness, 
worldliness, directing one's attention to where it ought not be. In fact, could I direct your thoughts to verse number 7 of chapter number 1? Idolatry had become rampant. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate, for she gathered it of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. Did you notice in that passage, God makes observation. There's a lot of idols. There's a lot of idolatry. My people have turned from me and given their attention over to these things which are not God's. It may well be in that light. We learn that their failures also went beyond idolatry. They did not deal in the kindness of humanity with one another. Isn't it true that the children of Israel had been told through the Ten Commandments and through the Law of Moses that they were to have a heart open with compassion toward those that were needy, such as the poor, such as the orphans, such as the widows, such as those otherwise who were destitute. Their heart was to be opened and largely so in matters of assistance and helpfulness and graciousness. But in Micah's day, that was not true. Listen to these words that begin chapter number 2. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in their power of their hand. Let me paraphrase that if I might. These people would devise while sleeping at night and while resting in their bed, they would devise means to take advantage of somebody else find ways to acquire that which they have. Look at the next verse. And they covet fields and take them by violence. They dreamt up ways to get what somebody else had because they wanted it. That's what covetousness is all about. But read on in that same verse. And houses and take them away. They wanted the very places where other people were dwelling, and they would dream up ways that they could pursue by some means that they might have it. That verse closes like this. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Under the law of Moses, God had dictated that that land was to belong to those families from that time forward. Even in the Jubilee year, they were given particular orders with respect to it returning to the families from which it had originally been come. These people, you see, had little regard for that kind of thing. They wanted their pockets full, and they were so desirous of making that happen, even if it meant taking advantage of the other people. Now, having said all of that, you may notice one more thing. In chapter number 3, it wasn't just the people at large doing this. The leaders were guilty of it too. The opening four verses of chapter number 3 read like this. And I said, Here I pray thee, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? Who hate the good and love the evil, we might as well pause right there. You and I know quite well God's injunction would be always love what's good and hate what's evil. But they had turned it around. They loved what was evil and hated what was good. 
you and I know nothing good is going to come out of that. Let's read on in those verses that follow. Who pluck off their skin from off them, and their flesh from off their bones. Proverbially, they are described as a bird of prey that plucks the skin off of its, off of its victim. You and I know very well what a buzzard does, what a vulture does. When the victim comes, they pluck away at that which they can get. The leaders of the people were acting like that way, plucking off the very attribute of the fortified skin of those that should have been their dutiful followers. Let's read on. Verse number 3, Who also eat the flesh of my people, and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces, as for the pot, and as flesh within the cauldron. Don't you agree the leaders of God's people weren't doing a very good job of leading? They were taking advantage. They were, in fact, availing themselves of the monetary matters and otherwise of the people. Now, verse 4, Then shall their cry unto the Lord, but He will not hear them. He will even hide His face from them at that time, even as they behave themselves ill in their doings. These leaders... The time might well come when Assyria is standing at the door and these leaders will then cry to God for help. But God says, I won't hear them then because they haven't heard me in the years leading up to it. When I admonished them and urged them and sent my prophets like Micah to preach to them, but they didn't hear me then. Isn't that a reminder of how strongly worthwhile it is to note that God is not someone like a particular being that you and I would imagine as a finger puppet. We do what we want, and He, in fact, we make Him serve us. God won't be like that. God says, I won't hear them then. You may notice about the middle of that slide that these leaders again hated what was good. They loved what was evil. It's at that point I would draw your attention to verse 5. It's not only the leaders that were guilty of this, but look at the prophets. Micah 3, verse 5. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry peace. And he that putteth not into their mouths, even they prepare war against him. Can you imagine the vengeful description of what we've just read? May I point out three things first. The prophets were proclaiming peace. You and I will recall Isaiah said the prophets were crying peace, but there is no peace. There can be no peace when you're not living for God. And yet the people who in fact were living selfishly, advantaging themselves, and the leaders were guilty of it too, and yet the prophets would say, it'll be just fine. God said it won't be just fine. Look at what else was in that verse. These prophets made God's people err. Might we take careful observation and be on guard against any preacher who does have the power to twist and pervert the will of God, and we all know that people will be apt to follow it because they respect a preacher. They respect a person in the position of a prophet, and they will thus think, well, if he said that, maybe God did say it. Maybe God did in some way urge him to bring that message before us. It was not so. They were causing God's people to err. 
Is it true that it's still possible that a preacher in eloquence, in power, in direction can cause people to be misled, to be misguided, to misunderstand? Reminds us of 2 Peter 3.16, doesn't it? When there, Peter made note that Paul had some things hard to say. God's Word has its elements of hardness about it, doesn't it? May we be thankful for the trueness, the direction, the absolute purity contained in the Word of God. And may we be thankful for those who in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and following, will always proclaim the full measure of the Word of God. At this point, let's finish up that slide like this. Back to chapter 1, verse number 9. Her wound is incurable, for it is come unto Judah. He is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Can I pause at this point and say, these words on the part of Micah must have been virtually unthinkable. Remember, at this time, Israel... And Judah alike were somewhat strong. Assyria had not come. Babylon was yet merely in the early times of her strength. Surely, when Micah proclaimed, doom is coming, Babylon is coming, Assyria is coming, the people must have almost laughed at him. You must be kidding. Don't you see? Everything is fine. We are serving God. The temple, don't you know, is here. May it be fair to say in that lie, the words then that, that were proclaimed by Micah must have appeared strange, almost unthinkable. I'd like to point out to you two verses, if I might. Chapter 4, verse 10. In that passage, let's give it a little attention, even as we note the following. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion... Like a woman in travail, for now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Might you and I be impressed. Micah predicted the Babylonian captivity. He told them, Judah, you're going off to Babylon. As you and I reflect upon it, that would be well over a century later. It was going to be well over a hundred years before that happened. And yet, down the stream of time, Micah foresaw it. Earlier, you and I have noted that Micah's prophecy was around 710, on up to about 730 or 740 B.C. That didn't finally happen until ultimately 605 is when it began. It didn't end until 586. If you wish to count it to the latter one, that was going to be, as you can well tell, almost 150 years later. But we're not done. Look at the other passage I invited you to note. Micah 5, verse number 5. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. One more time, notice here he calls Assyria by name and says, they too are coming, but now they were going to come in less than 20 years. I think we could be impressed. Micah foretold both captivities, both the Babylonian and the Assyrian, 
And he did so with directness. He did so with incredible power and strength. At the very least, can't you and I be impressed that God is a God of judgment? You and I know that hanging over the reality of all humankind is the final day of judgment because our God believes in judgment. You and I know quite well then how important it is to understand the reality of that judgment and to live in such a way that we're prepared for it. The next slide to which we'll turn our attention goes one step beyond this and holds out the beautiful reality of a restoration. Let's put those pieces together as we develop them like this. Micah has been so strong so far in detailing the coming of the enemies, in detailing the reality of the judgment. But he also is wonderful in that he makes known the reality of a restoration. Let me point to you in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. As I read this, I suspect it's going to sound familiar. But in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That, of course, is practically identical to Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. We've already noted tonight that Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries, and these words are practically identical to that which is found in the second chapter of the book of Isaiah. You and I can see in this a lovely recognition. There, to be sure, is a statement about the coming restoration of God's people, but without a doubt, its primary fulfillment looked down the stream of time over 800 years. I wonder what this could be. What is the mountain of the Lord's house? It's the church of our Lord. Remember again in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 when Paul could write... He's made this statement. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The Lord's house is His church. And Micah foretold the establishment of the Lord's church. Some of the particulars are fascinating, aren't they? Did you notice where it was to be established? Verse number 2 said, The word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. That's exactly where the Lord's church began in Acts chapter 2. That's exactly what the Lord, in fact, Himself had said in Luke 24, verse 49. He told the apostles, Tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The loveliness of that fulfillment then takes us right back to this passage. Many nations shall come. God's kingdom was to be universal. And in Daniel chapter 2, it's likened unto a great mountain. So too here we see it appear again. It might well be in that light that we come to near the bottom of that slide and note this. There are many other particulars found in the book of Micah which pique our interest. May I point out another one in chapter 5, verse number 2. 
But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. You and I know quite well that's the very passage that was brought in the ears of Herod. Do you recall when the baby Jesus was born that Herod made ask, where was he to be born that's to be the king of the Jews? Those prophets and those scribes of that day were able to say, based on Micah 5 verse 2, it's in Bethlehem. You'll notice again, the word was brought to Herod, but now they didn't return, you see. And they didn't cause Herod to understand the needfulness at that moment. But Herod, after he saw they didn't return, it was such that he gave order all the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two were to be slaughtered. But Micah is where they got the prophecy. It's the only place in the Old Testament. In all the 23,145 Old Testament verses, it's the only one that informs us where the Christ child was to be born. I think you and I can be impressed that those priests and those prophets and others that were in the days of Herod, they understood what Micah 5 verse 2 had taught. And it's interesting that that same verse closes by saying, from everlasting. They knew it was to be a a divine being that was born in Bethlehem. One other thing you and I might note about this In chapter 5, it goes on to say this. We'll not read all of the first 15 verses of that chapter, which is all the chapter. But there are several more things that are brought to bear. The people of that day, and you and I today, are told and rather strongly reminded that not only was this king to be born in Bethlehem, some other features about him were revealed. Notice verse 4. He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Look even further. Verses 8 and 9. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon mine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Many things about the power and majesty of the Christ are highlighted, and all of that's found in the fifth chapter of the book of Micah. Finally, might we notice that not only have we appreciated in a restoration... Although Micah had said that God's people would be taken captivity, but there was coming a future day when God's kingdom would reign and the great king would reign in regal mastery over it. At this point, why don't we do the following? Let's come to a final word of repentance and salvation. By and large, we will draw from the last two chapters our observations about these matters. But as we do that, Surely we'd be remiss not to highlight some of that which we see in chapter number 6. Verse number 2 reads, Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with His people, 
and he will plead with Israel. May I pause long enough to say that in many ways the prophet, speaking of course for God, set before the people what looks like a court scene. God is the prosecuting attorney. There is a jury in place who will give the final verdict. But you'll notice that verse number 2 pointed out the Lord has a controversy. The Lord has a case against you, Israel. You have not abided the way you should. And the evidence is abundant. You're not going to win this case. God has a controversy. Look at how it goes forward in verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? Wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. If you have a case, bring it. They had no case. God gave them the law. They had not kept it. They'd been guilty of breaking the first and second of the Ten Commandments. They'd been guilty of failing to show forth the basic elements of kindness and brotherly consideration to their neighbors. They had not kept many of the matters contained in that law. And now verse 4. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. God could say, don't you remember? Don't you remember the Red Sea? Don't you remember how I brought you out of Egypt? Don't you remember what Moses told you? Have you forgotten? Now verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? We now learn another of their problems. Their worship had become empty. Oh God, you have a controversy. Well, let me go get a ram. Won't that fix it all up? Let me go get a burnt offering. Won't everything be okay if I just offer that? And God said, no. The offerings never alone were enough. Look now at the next two verses. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Those are good questions. Now the answer. It was the lesson text read earlier tonight. Chapter 6, verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's what God wants. That's what He wanted then, and that's what He wants now. That is the single highest ethic to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. It rivals on par many of the places you and I can so readily remember in the New Testament. What does God want of us? Sounds like Matthew 6.33, doesn't it? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Romans 2, verses 5 and 6, namely, the faithful, obedient service to God. That's what He wants. He has showed you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To love mercy to do justly, to walk humbly with thy God. In faithful obedience, loving Him, striving to serve Him, thankful for what He's done, 
and ever striving to walk hand in hand with Him. Micah said this is what he wants. Just to go and offer sacrifice when your heart's not in it, that won't do any good. The sacrifice was to be out of the fruitful desire of expressing to God what He truly wants and what one wants to give Him. Just the offering of sacrifice by itself was not sufficient. And so too today. God wants you and me to serve Him exactly as Micah 6 verse 8 would detail because that's what also is contained in the New Testament, isn't it? At that point, as you conclude chapter number 6, you'll notice that we have some more details about the issues plaguing the people's conduct. For example, I've pointed out rather directly some of the initial thoughts of chapter 7. Chapter, uh, verse number 2. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. That goes back to those portraits we noted earlier about people who were so inhumane, so mean and ugly to even their fellow brothers and sisters in Egypt, or rather in, in, uh, in the days of Israel. As far as the detail, look at verse 3 that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. So the judge, as long as you'd bribe him, he would, he would, he would render a verdict in your favor. It didn't matter if it was right or not. Early part of verse number 3, the prince asketh, and so, when those in high position would ask the judge, he would always render in their side. Not only that, look at verse number 4. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and the visitation cometh now shall be their perplexity. We do not have a very good picture of the general people of Israel at this time, do we? They got up early. You notice verse number 3, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. Doing evil with one hand wasn't enough. Both hands. Sounds a lot like what we had read back in chapters 1 and 2, didn't it? You and I might appreciate how sorry it is when a nation is described by descriptions like this. The princes are evil. The religious folk are evil. The judges only judge according to what again can fill their own pockets. And the people have turned aside and are described like briars. And by the way, we aren't talking about roses. We're talking about those whose mindset was evil. They loved what was evil rather than what was good. And as we have already found, it was incurable. In less than 20 years, they were going to be headed to Assyria. They got what they wanted. They got what they deserved. Assyrian captivity. One final set of ideas. And the lesson tonight will be yours. As you reflect on some of the remaining matters of chapters 6 and 7, doesn't it highlight, among other things, the hope that awaits? Look at verse 14 of chapter 7, please. Feed thy people with thy rod... The flock of thine heritage which dwell solitarily is in the wood. In the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, 
as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. God says there is going to be a brighter day. That captivity in Assyria, it's going to be bad, no doubt about it. But how important it is to be faithful to God. You may be living in some harsh times and some bad moments, but you always be faithful. And now verse number 16, The nations shall see and be confounded in all their minds. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's our God. When you and I will turn in faithfulness to Him, He will cast our iniquities into the depths of the sea. They'll be forgiven, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Aren't you thankful we have a God like that? Who doesn't hold over us the club of, grudge, of grudgery such that He always holds that over us even after we've made forgiveness and atonement for it? Micah pointed out, our God in forgiveness will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. I love that imagery, don't you? As that closes the book of Micah, it brings us to our conclusion slide, which looks like this. What a great and noble work the prophet Micah sent forth. And I've saved in one way, one final observation which you and I might be so impressed by, and it's this. Micah had a role to play in saving Jeremiah's life, though Jeremiah lived a hundred years after Micah. You may ask, how could that be? It comes as you and I reflect upon the words found in Jeremiah 26, verses 18 and following. There was a time, you see, when Jeremiah was put into the dungeon, and there were folks who were so angry at his preaching and so unwilling to bend their appreciation of what he taught, they were willing and ready to kill Jeremiah. But then, but then, some old men said, Now wait a minute. Isn't what Jeremiah says exactly the same thing that Micah said? And we didn't kill Micah. Let's not kill Jeremiah. And so they didn't. The preaching and the prophecy of Micah actually helped to save Jeremiah's life. Doesn't that indicate again how powerful the Word of God is? The lasting characteristic it has. And so today, God has preserved the book of Micah for your benefit and mine. That all of us can appreciate God's judgment. That we can understand that He does present threats so that we might understand the need to live wisely. But He also holds out the beauty of a restoration for those who though they've gone astray, they will turn back to Him. Tonight it could be someone in this assembly would wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation. We want you to know it's never our invitation, it's the Lord's. He's the one that died for you and for me. He's the one, just as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, He's the one whose name we look forward to wearing. 
tonight, if we could be of assistance or help, we would set before you the urgency of a message like the one that Micah shared. If we could help tonight. You as an alien sinner need to believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have known that way of life, but have strayed from it, maybe you, like the people of Israel, have begun to act and to behave in ways that have brought reproach, that have not been consistent with the ways of God. And God, through His Word, sends you the urgent message of the need to repent too. And tonight, if you'd wish to do that, we'd be honored to encourage you to wrap arms of encouragement and solidarity around you. And tonight, we'd love to do that. This song of encouragement has been chosen, and if we could be of help, won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.